Today on Ag News Daily. And then making a decision, um, basically making sure that you're not creating uh, additional issues with that decision, and then making the announcement. I'm hopeful uh, over the course of the next couple of months we'll see how these appointments begin to roll out. But it takes time. Good afternoon and happy Thursday. We are almost to the weekend, which I'm really excited for. I say I'm really excited for it. I just remembered that it's not Easter weekend yet. I keep mixing <laughs> my weekends up, but I'm excited for Easter weekend too. So I guess that just means we're one week closer to Easter. Ashton, are you going to participate in any sort of Easter egg hunt? I probably will. I mean, I have some younger sisters that still do that kind of stuff. So we might do something. I'm not exactly sure. My parents haven't been going to church or anything really because of the pandemic. We've just been watching at home. So probably not any big activities, I would say. But my my birthday is on April 9th and my dad's is on April 8th. And so we always celebrate on Easter weekend. And so we're, we're going to be doing some of that. That sounds fun. My Easter festivities will start this weekend with some of my boyfriend's family and the next weekend again for my family. So I'll get two weekends worth of Easter egg hunting. Well, Delaney, hopefully you find the money egg. Yeah, I know. I'm hoping that they have some. That was always, uh, as a kid, I always went for the money eggs, not the candy, not going to lie. I was the same exact way, Delaney. But kicking things off this week, we have... I guess quite a bit to talk about, but one of the first things I want to talk about is one of our favorite ag podcasts, that being Fieldwork. They're back for their third season, as we've said a couple times on the podcast. I think this week was their fourth week, I want to say, back. And uh, co-hosts Mitchell Hora and Zach Johnson are talking all things sustainable agriculture. This season, they're tackling financing farm innovation, carbon markets, which has been a big thing, of course, new sustainability standards in crops like cotton, and so much more. And they're doing a special project, a focus on Washington County, Iowa, where Mitchell lives and farms, which has a very strong conservation culture. So you guys, uh, you listeners at home, I know you're listening to Ag News Daily, but you should go over to fieldworktalk.org or wherever you get your podcast to tune in to Mitchell and Zach on the Fieldwork podcast. Absolutely. And I believe Mitchell was actually a speaker at this week's AgriPulse food and policy event, Ashton. So he's probably got a lot of great insights to add about carbon and the carbon markets. So very cool stuff. But let's kick it off with some news for today, Ashton. I know you talked a little bit yesterday about the new pandemic $6 billion figure that the new CFAP program will be provided. But I've got some specific breakdowns here for eligibility for these payments. When you look at specific numbers, specific figures that will be available to farmers, uh, Saw this on Twitter, but feeder cattle less than 600 pounds will be eligible at a payment rate of $7 per head. Feeder cattle 600 pounds or more will be eligible at a rate of $25.50 per head. Slaughtered cattle, fed cattle will be at a payment rate of $63 per head. And looking through here at some of the other figures, USDA will give about $4.5 billion of that $6 billion number to more than 560,000 crop farmers at a payment rate of $20 an acre. And let's see, I'm trying to make sure I hit everything here. And I think I did, Ashton, unless you have any other updates on those figures as well. 
I don't have any updates on that. I don't. But I mean, we did see a ton of CFAP headlines today. So I'm glad that you found that breakdown because honestly, I didn't look into too many of the headlines since we um, heard from Secretary Vilsack yesterday. We're featuring that on the podcast. So I'm glad that you stuck with it. But one thing that I want to talk about, Delaney, um, and honestly, I, I giggle a little bit because just the way that this event happened is kind of crazy. I'm not sure if you've seen it, but there has been a blockage in the Suez Canal. Have you yes. seen it, Delaney? Yes, I'm glad you brought that up. I meant to talk about it yesterday and I totally forgot. Yeah, I saw it last night on TikTok of all places. <laughs> I'm just getting so much more news from TikTok these days, which is really funny to me. But from, from the looks of it, the driver of this very large cargo ship kind of lost control of the boat due to high winds and got this cargo ship stuck in this canal. It's lodged and they're calling it the beached whale cargo ship, which is, I mean, it's a little comical, but one thing that's not so comical is the back lodge of 206 large container ships, tankers carrying oil and gas and bulk vessels hauling grain that have been backed up at either end of the canal. So this is like one of the worst ship jams that we've seen for years. I think it was yesterday that I was talking about the port in Brazil. I don't know if it was yesterday or earlier this week, either way, about that port in Brazil who kind of had a, a backlog of um, of ships at their port that are waiting to come in and out. So it looks like we're going to have, um, you know, between that situation and this situation with the Suez Canal, it's going to be, um, you know, quite the backup in shipments. Yeah, it certainly is. And I think the long-term effects will be yet to be seen, but there are a lot of ships backed up on the Suez Canal issue. So I'm glad you brought that to our attention today, Ashton. Uh, Switching tracks here just a little bit, Ashton, the U.S. meat market, as we know, has had some strong recovery over the past year. Thinking about it, it's crazy to think that, you know, just about a year ago, we were seeing a lot of processing facilities shut down, folks going into quarantine, COVID, of course, running rampant at this time a year ago. But the U.S. meat market has seen strong recovery, according to JBS South America in a recent conference call with their investors. They said that Chinese demand for meat imports continues to be strong, which I think we see reflected in our weekly export sales as well. And backlogs at ports are starting to slow down a little bit. The pace of exports for the U.S., but the key here is that a lot of volumes are being sold. A lot of them are being stored, but they're just moving pretty slowly. Not only have we seen an increase in Chinese demand, but we've also seen Japan's demand is starting to return back to their normal, quote unquote, levels that we saw pre-pandemic. And Australia, which is an import, important exporter to Japan, uh, should have some lower production this year, according to JBS. So they're thinking that the U.S. may benefit from Japan's smaller production cycle this year. So overall, all in all, good news for livestock producers when it comes to long-term demand. Well, Delaney, I have some bad news for some European fashion brands like Adidas, Nike, H&M, their stocks are starting to fall as critics on social media are kind of going after these brands and these companies over comments that they have previously made about 
Xinjiang in China. As we know, that region of China is pretty well known for labor issues, humanitarian issues, whatever you want to call it. Um, and so these critics on social media are, are going back into the, the depths, back into the archives to see if companies have made any statements about Xinjiang and working with them, whatever you want to you want to dig up on them. They're attacking these brands. And so they're thus kind of boycotting these brands. This isn't too big of a hard hitting piece of news, but I definitely wanted to bring it to your attention because we're starting to see more momentum behind this boycott because they've been talking about this region in China for quite some time now. And so I just think that it's, you know, finally gaining this momentum and kind of don't know what's ahead for this region in China, for these labor issues and for these brands. Yeah, that's very interesting, Ashton. I'm glad you brought it to our attention. We'll continue to watch that story and see how that develops there. Absolutely. Delaney, do you have any other pieces of news today? I think that besides chatting markets, I'm good, Ashton. What do you say we hit the markets for today? Let's do it. All right. Well, we saw a pretty hard sell-off today across the board in grains. Kicking things off here in the May corn contract down six and a quarter cents today to close at 547. The December new crop contract down three and three quarter cents to close at 465 and a quarter. May soybeans today 18 and a quarter cent lower to close at 414 and a half. The November down 13 and a quarter cent lower to close at 414 and a half. The November down 13 and a quarter cents to close at 1215. In the wheat pits, the May contract down 11 and three quarters cents today to close at 613. The July down nine and three quarters cents to close at 609 even. And taking a look at livestock today, we saw green across the screen as the April live cattle contract closed 42 and a half cents higher to close at 119.55. The June up 77 and a half cents to close at 121.07 and a half. Feeder cattle higher today as well with the April contract adding $1.77 and a half to close at 144.22 and a half the May, up $1.80 to close at 149.12 and a half. And in lean hogs, big moves today across the complex as the April contract added $1.90 to close at $99.67 and a half. So we might see some of these front month contracts get above $100 before they expire here. June is well above $100, now up $1.27 today to close at $103.32 and a half. And rounding out our markets with the class three dairy milk futures. They were Higher today after yesterday's weakness as the April contract added 18 cents to close at 16.80. The May up 12 cents to close at 17.32. Without further ado, Ashton, let's pick it up for part two of the conversation that USDA Secretary Tom Vilsack had yesterday with NAFB reporters. Mr. Secretary, a couple of questions submitted uh, in the chat that I'll uh, read off here. Uh, first one from uh, Kara Hart of the Red River Farm Network in Grand Forks, North Dakota. Uh, she asked, regarding the possible COVID assistance for biofuel producers, what does that look like? Will that be distributed through infrastructure or companies or, or some other format? Well, that's the reason why we're not in a position today uh, to, to provide the details, because we're simply announcing that as we look at the allocation of this $6 billion dollars, Biofuels and assistance for biofuels will be part of it, part of that $6 billion disbursement. So that gives an indication to the industry that we recognize that they were left out of previous uh, uh, packages 
they won't be left out of this package. We're still in the process of deciding the, the, the details of this. Um, we're going to obviously get additional input. We're going to from from all factors uh, that have been that will be part of this six billion dollars, and then make try to make a determination as best as we can to provide as much help as we possibly can uh, to folks. And that may be that we complement and supplement whatever it is we're doing with the six billion dollars from uh, other re, uh, other programs, as we've done with the five hundred million dollar pot that we announced today. That may be part uh, of something that would be in addition to, if you will. The six billion, just as the five hundred million, is separate from the six billion, um, so it's six point five billion total uh, for that for those two buckets. Um, so it, we're not yet in a position to say precisely how we're going to do this. We're just in we are in a position to say we are going to do something. We're going to do something meaningful for the industry because we understand and appreciate that we suffered uh, through a very difficult time. Another question submitted through the chat is from Brian Almer of The Barn in Colorado. Uh, he asks, when can we expect the official announcements for USDA state director positions, uh, FSA, rural development, NRCS, and the like? Well, if it were up to me and me alone, uh, we'd have those done by now, but it's not up to me. Uh, the reality is every administration goes through what is called the Presidential Personnel Office. They have roughly 4,000 positions they have to fill. They've had over 50,000 people. Uh, basically apply for those positions. So they're working through the process. Uh, you know, frankly, we're, we're focused as well on getting our undersecretaries in position. It's going to take a while. Uh, I will say this, uh, that in terms of my previous experience as secretary, uh, we are further along in terms of getting people in the office, uh, if you will, in, in USDA today than we were at, at a comparable time, uh, if you will, during uh, my previous stint as secretary. So progress is being made. We're doing it pretty uh uh, effectively and efficiently. And there's a lot to it. Uh, there's a lot of vetting and a lot of review uh, to make sure that you're getting the right people. There are a lot of interests that have to be uh, reached out to. It's not just what I think, uh, who, who I think the secretary, the state director should be for uh, for FSA in the state of Iowa. Uh, there are a lot of folks who have input in that, as they should. There are a lot of people who might be suggested that we might, I might not think of that would be great. Uh, so it's getting input. Uh, it's analyzing that input. It's making sure that people don't have something that might uh, disqualify them from participation and then making a decision, uh, basically making sure that you're not creating a, a additional issues with that decision and then making the announcement. So I'm hopeful uh, over the course of the next couple of months, we'll see how these appointments begin to roll out. But it takes time. We're going to go back to the, to the Zoom lines here for our next question. Uh, one uh, ready from Josh Scramlin. Hi, Secretary Vilsack, uh, Josh Gramlin in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, so it feels like there's a lot of different info coming out of China about African swine fever each and every day. It feels like one day it's getting better, one day it feels like it's getting worse. Ever since you've taken over as Secretary of Ag and you have all this info in front of you, I mean, how would you summarize the situation of ASF in China right now? <laughs> well, uh, I did actually have a chance to visit with the Chinese Ag Minister uh, earlier this week. And I asked him about the status of African swine fever. And this is what he told me. He told me that they have it under control. Now, I would expect him to say nothing different than that. Um, you know, I think I suspect that what we have is a situation where there are probably some hot spots uh, that are taking place uh, in China. H having said that, uh, the reality is he, he advised me that the Chinese pork prices are coming down. 
which would suggest that they are, at least are seeing an increase in supply. Now, some of that may be coming from pork they're purchasing, and they are purchasing a lot of pork. Maybe that's the reason why prices have come down for their consumers, but I suspect it's also because a portion of their industry is back online. So I think the truth is probably somewhere in between. Uh, they don't have it totally under control, but I don't think it's anywhere near as, as devastating as it was perhaps six, nine months ago. Thank you. Next question comes from Stu Ellis. Stu. Thank you, Mr. Secretary. We uh, we appreciate you being with us, and we have enjoyed uh, uh, your presence uh, throughout the country in the past. Your predecessor uh, was somewhere on the road almost every week, uh, and just wondered if you are going to or planning on maintaining a, a very similar travel schedule where you will uh, be out with farmers and agribusiness and the farm media on a regular basis. Well, I certainly will be uh, with farm media on a regular basis. Uh, you know, in terms of travel, obviously, a lot of it has to depends on how often and how frequently and how soon all of us can get vaccinated to the point where uh, we feel comfortable, uh, we meaning the collective we, feel comfortable traveling uh, more uh, and providing opportunities to be with farmers and ranchers. I'm sh- I, I, when I was secretary last time, I visited all 50 states. Uh, I don't know that that will necessarily be the case this time around. I would hope that it would be. Um, but COVID may have an impact on on how soon I can resume uh, aggressive travel. But I think anybody that watched me for eight years knows that I was out and about and that uh, I was available. So that's not going to change. Already a couple of questions submitted from the chat, and we've got uh, just a little uh, little shy of 10 minutes uh, remaining here with the secretary a little closer to uh, seven or eight if we want to get technical. Uh, I did not uh, request the shameless plug of our summit. That was another farm broadcaster that uh, that did that. But uh, he mentioned some comments made by Robert Bonney uh, made at our uh, at the at the AgriPulse event yesterday saying USDA not necessarily considering a carbon market, but rather a carbon bank. Uh, John uh, Harris wondering if you could uh, discuss your view of of the difference between the two, that carbon market versus carbon bank? Well, I, I think the difference is that they, that, uh, and Robert, if he were here, would say the difference is the carbon market isn't designed for farmers. Uh, it's, I alluded to it earlier, 135 million uh, credits, only two and a half million credits uh, devoted to agriculture because the carbon market as it exists today has not been set up as to incent or encourage farmers to participate. Uh, I think a carbon bank, uh, if you were to set one up, would have to be set up in such a way that it was designed for and to benefit farmers. Uh, and that means a perhaps a, a slightly different design, a slightly different implementation, a slightly different pricing system or incentive system built into a carbon bank that would, would be different than a carbon market. Uh, all of it designed to create a new revenue opportunity for farmers. Uh, and and that I, I think that's the key. Uh, that's why we're asking for input. That's why we're looking at different ways in which it could be set up uh, so that the incentive would be significant enough and the hassle would be uh, less uh, than it might be on a, on a, a traditional carbon market status. Um, we would also, I think, probably look for partnerships, uh, ways in which we can encourage those who are interested in, in seeing agriculture and American agriculture lead the way globally. Uh, to basically assist us uh, as we set this up. It doesn't necessarily have to be solely USDA. Uh, there can be partnerships formed as well, uh, which may be slightly different than what you might see in a, in a market situation. 
Another question asks if you have had the chance to uh, look at a letter submitted uh, just yesterday by the National Potato uh, Commission, as well as uh, 20 other ag groups, uh, urging your attention to Mexico's delay on a decision that would allow U.S. fresh potatoes and other U.S. crops into Mexico. And uh, uh, the questioner notes that those groups are concerned Mexico is not living up to its end of the USMCA trade pact and wondering where where this issue uh, falls on on your, your priorities. Well, the second person I talked to from the standpoint of foreign ag ministers was the Secretary of Agriculture of Mexico. And the first topic that I brought up uh, with the Secretary uh, after basically talking about the importance of USMCA enforcement and implementation was the issue of potatoes. Uh, right now, we are waiting. Uh, we uh, collectively, again, uh, are waiting on a uh, decision uh, from the uh, Mexican Supreme Court as to whether or not the Mexican government at the time they established a rule that would have opened up more uh, opportunities for our potato growers, whether uh, they, the, that rule was was uh, contested by the potato industry in Mexico. It's gone up through their court system to their, their final court. We're waiting for a ruling from the final court. Uh, our hope is that it's a, a positive ruling. Uh, Secretary uh, Villalobos suggested that he was confident that it might very well be a positive uh, outcome. We'll see. Uh, it may or may not. Um, but if it is, then that would open the door for opportunities. If it's not, uh, then the second uh, process that we've engaged in is uh, correspondence with the U.S. Trade Representative's office. And I'll have an opportunity uh, uh, later this week to visit with the uh, newly confirmed trade uh, ambassador uh, to encourage her to do what I think she's already uh, inclined to do, which is to make sure that there is uh, enforcement of the, the terms and conditions and spirit of the USMCA, not just on the Mexican side of the border, but also on the Canadian side of the border as it relates to wheat and dairy. Uh, so I think we have issues with both of our USMCA partners about implementation. So looking around, and I think all of our uh, all the folks that are looking to ask the first round of questions uh, have uh, have already done so. So I'm going to go back to uh, go. I uh, actually we'll see how uh, how quick uh, Peter can be on his feet here. We're going to go to Tom Cassidy uh, from New York. Uh, Peter, again, that's Tom Cassidy. If we could get him unmuted, that'd be great. Hi, Mr. Secretary. Um, Tom Cassidy from uh, the Northeast. I'm wondering about the updated pandemic assistance for producers reopening CFA P2. I'm curious if you have a sense of how many producers were left out of those uh, previous rounds The uh, and uh, what kind of total uh, we're looking at as uh, folks that might not have uh, been able to participate before. Well, I don't know that we necessarily have a, a good number on that. Uh, well, obviously, the, the amount of socially disadvantaged farmers is a relatively small percentage of the overall farming population in the country based on, on the surveys. Uh, I think based on our uh, loan portfolio, it, it represents uh, 11% and maybe less than that from a standpoint of total population. Um, so I, I don't know that we have a specific number, but what we do know is that a lot of folks didn't understand or didn't appreciate um, uh, that there were opportunities for them to, part to participate. And here's, you know, here's what it may be hard for people to understand. And this is why we're. This is why this issue of equity is important, and why people have to understand why we're going to have a lot of conversation about it. There is no question, and there's absolutely no doubt about the fact that discrimination occurred in many parts of the country, directed at socially disadvantaged farmers for many, many years. And over the course of time, because of that discrimination, because of acts where people were denied loans or their loans were processed 
very late in the production season or their interest rate was higher or there were other barriers that were placed in front of them that weren't if, uh, placed in front of other farmers. These farmers basically were, couldn't get themselves in the same possible circumstance to be as productive as other farmers have been. So over time, the gap between these folks who had full advantage of all of the programs at USDA on a timely way and those who didn't has grown. And what has also grown is the fact that these folks over here may not fully trust USDA. So we, we have work to do to rebuild that trust relationship. Uh, and we have work to do to basically help them get to a point where they can take full advantage of USDA programs. So we wanna go the extra mile as it relates to COVID because we wanna send a message that we get it. Uh, we understand and appreciate there's been a cumulative effect of discrimination over time. And we want to make sure that we're dealing with that in a fair and equitable way, starting with the fact that we're allocating these resources. Now, just consider this. Here's why we're doing this. If you look at, at folks who are self-identified, in other words, people that go into the USDA office and when they apply for a loan, they check the box and they say they're white or they say they're African-American, okay? Self-identified. If you look at the self-identified population of COVID, people who got COVID resistance, who self-identified as black and Asian-American or whatever, 99% of the money 99% of the $38 billion that has already been spent and invested in producer assistance, 99% went to white farmers. 1% went to socially disadvantaged farmers. And if you want to carve it down to African-American or black farmers, one-tenth of 1%. So I'm, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't great in math, but I was good enough to think Maybe maybe we need to make sure we did everything we need to do to make sure that folks had a chance to participate. So 99% of 30, $38 billion went to one group. And surely, you know, those folks are the big producers and they got lots of acres. No, no question that they're entitled to help. But my guess is if we had better outreach, those percentages would be different. Now, I don't know how different, much different they'd be, but I'm pretty sure that black farmers would get more than one-tenth of 1% 1 of the resource. We'll see. Thank you. Alrighty, I think we've got time for one more question, and that question is going to go to Brent Adams from the Fast Line Fast Track. Mr. Secretary, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Uh, you were talking about Catherine Tai earlier. You spent the past few years focused on exports. Uh, from where you stand, what are some of the biggest trade priorities that need to be focused on here over the next couple of years? Uh, implementation of USMCA, expansion of the Japanese trade agreement to eliminate the disadvantage we currently find our beef producers under, by virtue of the fact that we've sold a lot of beef to Japan early in the year, we're now faced with a, a tariff that puts us at a disadvantage in that market based on, uh, on, on the current trade agreement. Maintaining some relationship with China so that the Chinese purchases continue at pace and pick up so that they are consistent with the phase one responsibility. Looking for opportunities to expand new relationships in the United Kingdom and in Southeast Asia and potentially in Africa. And while we're doing all of that, 
we need to understand that the secret sauce of, of trade, in my view, is making sure that we have enough people in these markets giving us the insights necessary for us to understand precisely what those markets need and want from us and that we basically respond specifically to that. We have enough partnerships with folks uh, and entities in country so that we not only have ourselves being promoters, but more importantly, we have people from that country, from that region promoting U.S. agriculture and more, uh, more promotions, more opportunities for us to showcase. Um, and we talked earlier about the sustainability message. We have a good sustainability message today. We'll have a great one in the future. We want to make sure there's plenty of venues, if you will, for the articulation of that of, of that commitment to sustainability and animal welfare and so forth. So I think that's, in a nutshell, uh, where the focus ought to be. Thank you. Well, Mr. Secretary, I think we are up against the, the end of our time uh, with you here today. Obviously, we want to thank you and, and your staff, uh, Matt, Eric, Peter, Ree, the, the whole team at USDA for, for their help in, in making this conversation happen. We appreciate you being, being willing to spend some time speaking with uh, the National Association of Farm Broadcasting and its membership. Uh, this is uh, the first chance that we've had to, to chat with you in, in the second iteration of your time as Secretary, uh, obviously, and hopefully uh, certainly will, will not be the last. So, so thanks again for your time, Mr. Secretary. Well, we thank you very much for the opportunity. Everyone stay well. Well, again, certainly a big thing